I love these passages in the Old Testament. Uh, just when I was feeling kind of excited about the nice sunny afternoon and uh, the, the day is getting a little longer and brighter and feeling a little bit more cheery about um, spring being on its way, we get verse 17, I'll bring such distress on all people that they'll grope about like those who are blind. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Cheery stuff for a Sunday afternoon. Um, but as you know, I also love spending a bit of time uh, in these Old Testament prophetic writings that we usually don't spend as much time in, because we usually go to the parts of the Bible, the gospel accounts, the, the letters in the New Testament, the Psalms, the bits that, that, that make sense to us, the bits that feel familiar and comforting and encouraging. And yet I believe that there is uh, great gold and great treasure to be found for us if we will be patient and spend a little time in these books. And as you know, uh, in January and the first half of February, we journeyed through the three chapters of uh, Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, if you're American, um, Habakkuk, uh, and, and spent time there in the mornings, uh, in the morning service during Lent, we're journeying through Jonah, looking at each of the four chapters of Jonah. We began that this morning. Uh, and this, in the afternoon service, up until Easter, uh, our sermon is going to be focused on this book of Zephaniah. Uh, and I'm excited to see what it's going to yield for us and how God is going to speak to us. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would open our ears and our hearts by your Spirit to hear and to receive your word, and to see afresh Jesus and how we may follow him. We pray that amidst um, the doom and the destruction uh, of these prophetic words, we might also see hope and life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, each of our children learned to ride their bikes just here in the church gardens, and I remember um, being outside with them, watching them take those sort of tentative uh, first pedals, uh, cycles, uh, as they try to make their way around uh, the garden. And I don't know if you ever watched um, a child learning to ride a bike. There's always an inevitable moment when they're cycling, and it all looks like it's going okay, and then they sort of swivel a bit one side and they try to adjust and they go back the other way and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and they're kind of careering out of control and the, that you know it's inevitable that any minute they're going to fall off and there'll be blood and there'll be tears and you're going to have to rush over and pick them up again. Uh, it's just sort of inevitable um, and all you can do is watch and wait and be ready to pick up the pieces after. It could be as a child that's learning to, uh, to ride a bike, or uh, I also remember with our kids when they were little and they had those little three-wheeled micro-scooters, but again, you would see them kind of career off into a wall or whatever it might be. Uh, I remember in my own experience as well, learning to ice skate, learning to surf, uh, and sort of you know, feeling like you're just getting it, and then you go a little bit off balance, and you try to correct, but as you correct, you go a bit off balance the other way, and you know inevitably you're going to land on your bum on the ice in the water. I think that Zephaniah is a bit like that. We're watching the inevitable car crash that is about to come, and we're kind of hoping that there'll be some comfort and some restoration afterwards. But it's like at the moment, all we can do is like watch the child careering one way or the other, knowing that eventually, boom. It draws our attention, the prophecy of Zephaniah, to the sin and the chaos that dominates our world and our lives. And it warns us of a coming judgment. 
Now, this judgment, it turns out, will be good news for some and bad news for others, and this, in turn, will give us a concern for mission and evangelism in our world today, and we'll get to that a little bit later. And over the period of Lent, we're going to look at each of the three chapters in turn and see how they can speak into our lives today. I need to warn you that there's not going to be very much good news for us in chapters one and two, so you're going to have to, like, persevere and keep on going until we get a bit closer to Easter and we get to chapter three. Um, It's a bit like tidying a room or sorting your desk. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Before we get stuck into chapter one, a little bit of context. So verse one, Zephaniah is introduced as the great grandson of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king who lived at the end of the eighth century And Isaiah was a court prophet in the reign of Hezekiah. So when you're reading the prophetic uh, writings, when you read the book of Isaiah, much of that was uh, from the period of Hezekiah. And because Hezekiah paid attention to what God said through Isaiah, the southern kingdom of Judah avoided the fate of the northern kingdom Israel. The northern kingdom Israel fell to the Assyrian Empire in 721. However, Hezekiah himself was succeeded by uh, King Manasseh and then Amon, both of whom were notoriously terrible kings. And they introduced all kinds of pagan worship and gods into Judah, and they failed to keep covenant with God. When you're reading Chronicles and Kings, it's sort of an account of good kings and bad kings, and trying to say, you know, when people are godly and they pay attention to the covenant and the law, things go well in the land. When people go chasing after other gods, things go badly. And uh, in the first half of the 7th century, forgive me, I always have to think through it. So the sort of 690s through into the kind of 650s or so, Manasseh and Ammon are kings. And the whole of the southern kingdom was becoming chaotic and was being plagued by sin, injustice, and violence, just as the northern kingdom had been a century earlier. And Zephaniah, though, is raised in this context. He lives in the middle of the 7th century BC, and uh, he's part of a royal lineage. He seems to know Jerusalem well. Uh, He refers later on in chapter 1 to various different places in Jerusalem, the fish gate and uh, all kinds of different quarters, this quarter and that quarter. He seems to know a great deal about the people who live in Jerusalem, about the commerce, the trade, the practices of different neighborhoods. And that suggests to us that he's a reasonably well-educated court prophet of royal lineage right at the heart of civic life in Jerusalem and Judah. And these prophetic words recorded in chapters 1, 2, and 3 are, are offered during the reign of King Josiah. King Josiah reigned from 639 to 608 BC. So you've got Hezekiah, the uh, very end of the 8th century, beginning of the 7th century. Then you've got Manasseh, Amon, and then Josiah. Now, Josiah uh, is, again, quite a famous uh, king, a biblical king in Judah. For fans of the West Wing, like me and Sarah, he inspired uh, the naming of President Jed Bartlett, Josiah Bartlett. And uh, Josiah, 2 Kings 22, tells us that Josiah was a good king who began to reign at the age of eight. And in the 18th year of his reign, so when he was 26, he discovered the book of the law in the temple. And he set about instituting a renewal of covenant 
obedience. Well, if he began his reign in 639 at the age of eight and at the age of 26, my maths tells me that that was 621 BC. So 621 BC, the, the book of the law is found in the temple and Josiah's reforms are introduced. And it was a significant reform. He destroyed a lot of the kind of pagan altars and uh, that where sacrifices were offered to pagan gods. But it wasn't enough uh, in the end, to save Judah from its coming conquest and exile. We know from our study last month in Habakkuk, uh, which is set in the late 600s, that Judah would eventually be besieged by Babylon in 597, and a bunch of the leading dignitaries are taken off to Babylon, uh, and then Nebuchadnezzar comes back again in 587, besieges Jerusalem, and finally takes away all the gold and uh, all the leading people and um, leaves Jerusalem ruined. Zephaniah's prophecies describe the coming judgment on Jerusalem and Judah. Zephaniah's prophecies call out Jerusalem and Judah for their disobedience and their wickedness. Now, for this reason, Zephaniah's prophecies must either be set shortly before the discovery of the book of the law and Josiah's ensuing reforms, or a little while after, when it was clear that the initial period of reform and Torah obedience had not stuck. My best guess is that they are earlier a little before Habakkuk. That seems to be the consensus of scholars around the 630s and 620s. And that Josiah, King Josiah, in his teens and his 20s, came under the influence of this courtly prophet of royal lineage named Zephaniah, and that this made him more receptive to reform when the book of the law was found. Isn't that a nice thought? That Josiah had somewhere in his circle of advisors, Zephaniah, there, and he was paying attention to what God wanted to say through Zephaniah. So there's a bit of context. Now, um, in chapter one, there are two dominant themes for us to explore, uh, decreation and the day of the Lord. Look, they both begin with D. It's made for me. There were, it's a pity there weren't three of them. But there we are, a decreation and the day of the Lord, and these are the two dominant themes. Um, and I think there is a bit of good news in this for us, which we'll get to soon. First of all, decreation. Verses two and three begin and end with the phrase, the face of the earth. I will sweep everything, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast, I will sweep away birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble when I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth. So there's that repeated phrase, face of the earth. Now, a familiar reader of uh, Scripture will immediately hear the creation account in Genesis echoed. Because Genesis 1.29, God gives to his human creation every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth for food. That's the vegetarian mandate for some of us. Um, and then again in chapter 6, and in chapter 7 of Genesis, this phrase, the face of the earth, uh, is mentioned. Chapter 6, verse 7, God will wipe from the face of the earth the human race. Uh, chapter 7, verse 4, he says again, he'll wipe from the face of the earth every living creature. This is the period, this is ch Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, are the account of Noah and the flood. Yeah, you remember that story. So this is where uh, God is saying humanity has sinned, it's become disobedient, it's uh, you know, fallen away, and now he has to destroy it all and start 
again. And we know how that story ends with God's covenant sealed with the sign of the rainbow. Whenever you see a rainbow, remember that the original meaning of the rainbow is God's covenant never to destroy all of his creation again. Uh, But the face of the earth in the Genesis account is about both the goodness and the corruption of God's creation. So when we read verses 2 and 3 in Zephaniah 1, we're immediately thinking, ah, this is something to do with the goodness and the corruption of creation. And in verses 2 and 3, there's a sort of act of decreation to mirror the creation narrative in Genesis. And it's the opposite order. So first of all, men and animals are decreated, then birds, then fish. That's the exact opposite order from the creation narrative. God is unmaking creation in his judgment, in his wrath. But in verses 4 to 6, this global act of decreation finds its focus in Jerusalem and Judah. So this is going to be a global unmaking of creation. Why? Because of the sin of Jerusalem and Judah. The reason is made clear. It's the idolatrous worship of Baal and Molech. Baal and Molech, two pagan gods uh, of the ancient Near East. Now, we find this judgment a bit strange to our ears, I sometimes think at least, because we live in such a pluralistic culture with relativistic ethics. Why should there be such judgment against people with other religious beliefs? So there were some followers of Molech, live and let live. You know, like, what's the big deal, God? You know, you do you, sort of thing. Well, actually, the reason it's a big deal is that we know that infant sacrifice was practiced by the priests of Molech. If you wanted health, wealth, a good harvest, you might be invited to cast your children into the fire as a sacrifice to Molech in the hope that this would placate his anger and bring you favorable weather for your farming or whatever. Just pause and think a minute about what it would be like to live in a culture where you were invited to take your children where the, the, the social pressures around you were saying, if you want to be successful, if you want to health or wealth, you're going to have to put, burn one of your children to death in the fire. Imagine what the social pressures must have been like if people actually would succumb to that. And this is abhorrent to God, because every woman, man, and child is made in the image of God. Psalm 139, every child is fearfully and wonderfully made. Every child bears the likeness and the image of God. Humanity is an icon of the invisible God, an icon of God in creation. Every child is worthy of dignity, honor, care, and protection. So the idea, so so this practice of human sacrifice is abhorrent to God. Actually, the idea of human sacrifice seems abhorrent to us, but this is chastening for us because we all have versions of it in our own day. Some models of parenting refuse to give the children the love and the care that they need because of the pursuit of career success, growing wealth, or simply prioritizing our own concerns and preferences. It's a form of infant sacrifice. Maybe not burnt in the fire to Moloch, but a form. Some cases of abortion have to do with the refusal to accept the economic impact of childbearing. Some as a result of pursuing sex outside the covenant context of marriage. One way or another, every culture has its own version of infant sacrifice and will have its version of acceptable infant sacrifice. And so we should always be open to God's word of judgment on us to check whether we have more in common with the worshippers of Molech than we might think. De-creation, the first 
thing we see in the first half of Zephaniah 1. Second, the day of the Lord. Now, the concept of the day of the Lord is introduced in the prophet Amos, but it's developed here in Zephaniah. And in chapter 1, the phrase and its close equivalence is mentioned 13 times. So what is the day of the Lord? Or as we see it in our text, um, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's sacrifice, on that day, on that day, the great day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is bitter, the day of wrath, day of distress, day of trouble, day of darkness, day of cloud, day of trumpet and battle, the day of the Lord's wrath. So many different versions uh, of this phrase, the day of the Lord. What is it? Well, it's a day of reckoning when God will come to put the world to right. In the Jewish imagination, it was a point at the end of time when God would come down in person and subject to judgment all those who rebel against and oppose God's rule. So in the Jewish imagination, it's more about an event in time rather than an extent of time. The day of the Lord is not a literal 24 hours. It's more about a time when God will come and act decisively. And what does it look like? It looks like punishment, judgment, destruction, wrath. All of the edifices and the pursuits that have been built up in opposition to God's rule are torn down. The houses that they built will be torn down. The vineyards that they built will be destroyed and they will not drink from them. Yeah, that's what Zephaniah 1 is saying. All of these, all of these human constructs that are about bolstering our own strength, our own capacity. It's not that God is against architecture or um, agriculture in and of itself. It's the, it's the way they stand as a symbol of human endeavor. It's like the Tower of Babel. It's not that building something is wrong. Jesus actually talks about people setting out to go and build a tower uh, and counting the cost before. It's not that building towers is wrong. It's that building towers so that you can take the place of God and be like God is wrong. In the Jewish imagination, the day of the Lord is a fearful and dreadful thing. And here in Zephaniah, the judgment and the coming wrath is directed against the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah. So being part of God's covenant people, you, like you think you're the goodies because you live under the rule of good King Josiah and you had good King Hezekiah before and you're circumcised and you're, you know, you, maybe you keep food purity laws, I don't know, but you, know, you think you're part of God's chosen people. Being the goodies makes no difference. There are no goodies on the day of the Lord. Indeed, God's chosen people will be judged first. In chapter 2, we're going to hear more about God's judgment and wrath on the surrounding nations. But in Zephaniah, it's clear those who belong to God are the ones who are in the firing line first. We find it hard, I think, as Christians to reconcile the judging wrath of God with the God of love that we encounter in Jesus. Historically, that's been a challenge for Christians. And indeed, in the early church, this led to what became known as the Marcionite heresy, the belief that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are fundamentally different deities and that we can ignore the Old Testament because it doesn't square with what we see of God in Jesus. That was called a Marcionite heresy. But the early church quickly came to see that actually the day of the Lord was good news for us because of Jesus. So everything that we've heard about the wrath and the day of the Lord in the Old Testament and the prophets that they were looking towards, when it finds its fulfillment in Jesus, things are radically turned around. The first Christians came to believe that God had poured out his judgment and wrath upon the sin of humanity, yes, but that it had been focused upon Jesus in his crucifixion. They had a construct 
to conceive of this in the Passover story, the idea that a sacrificial lamb without stain or blemish might be offered and become protection for God's people. The first Christians came to see that the day of the Lord as an event had begun with the crucifixion of Jesus. All the sin and rebellion, the disease and the disorder of humankind was laid upon Jesus and put to death in his body on the cross. God's wrath had been poured out on humanity. He did wipe from the face of the earth his rebellious human creation, but he did it by taking the punishment himself, by being incarnate and living as one of us. He became the representative human to take the punishment for all of us. That's what was going on that first Easter in the crucifixion of Jesus. But the crucifixion is not the end of the story. The resurrection of Jesus showed that this event, the day of the Lord, the putting to rights of all the earth, is begun but not yet completed. It is inaugurated but not yet consummated. And, and therefore, we actually live within the day of the Lord as an event. It's begun but not yet completed between God's first and second appearing in Christ. The New Testament writers started to realize that the work of God's wrath was occurring now in our lives, refining and delivering us from our slavery to sin. And now here I find a medical metaphor helpful. We need the surgical knife to cut the cancerous cells from our body. We need the radiotherapy to destroy those cancerous cells. The knife and the radiotherapy in and of themselves seem violent, seem destructive, but there are some things in our bodies that need to be destroyed. Actually, the judgments and the wrath of God on our sin is good news for us because it sets us free to live holy and liberated lives obedient to Christ. Without God's judgment, we are abandoned and enslaved by our sin. With God's judgment, we are set free to worship and enjoy him forever. St. Paul uses the metaphor of a refining fire in 1 Corinthians 3 with the idea that what we build our lives upon will be tested and anything base and impure will be burned up. He says we will pass through judgment as through fire. The things which are base and worthless destroyed, but what remains purified and refined. And so, this side of the cross, the day of the Lord is not perceived as such a threat because the judgment and the wrath of God is directed through Jesus. Karl Barth described it as the judge judged in our place. And he said that the judgment of God was in favor of all humanity through Jesus Christ. I said that this can be a resource for mission and evangelism. Well, how so? Well, all in Christ find that their sin and their rebellion has been judged, destroyed in God's wrath, and that they have been liberated from their enslavement so that they can worship and enjoy God's kingdom. That's the good news of being a Christian. But not all are in Christ. We have friends and family members, work colleagues and neighbors who do not know the love of God in Christ, who do not confess Jesus Christ as Lord. So the great news that we have to offer the world is freedom, freedom from disease, freedom from disorder, freedom from despair, freedom from futility.
When you know that the very worst parts of who you are have been seen, judged, tested, and not counted against you, that's when you know what forgiveness is. And living in that forgiveness allows the Spirit of God to undertake that refining work with you, uh, within you. The only things to be destroyed in God's wrath are the things that lead to death. And so the Spirit of God is like a skilled surgeon who frees us from disease and leads us into life. And that's why the day of the Lord, in the end, is good news for us and good news for a world in need. That's where we're going to leave Zephaniah chapter 1.